0: the reviews have been incredible. Um, The book has been called Moving, Delightful, Surprising, Terrifically Readable, Piercing and Honest, Funny, Unafraid, Bleak, Fascinating, Brave, Touching, Exceptional, Tough, Indomitable, Eloquent, Unsparingly Clear-Eyed, Not Only a Great Book, But an Achievement. My God. Um, Almost makes you jealous, but let's clap instead for the uh, the one and only. Come on out. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, hi, I'm Cole. Uh, I wrote a book about discovering that I have a hole in my brain about the size of a lemon. Uh, so I'm going to read from that today, because that's the only book I have. <laughs> so um, I thought I'd start by showing you a little bit about the structure of the book. Um, and to do that, I'm going to start with an epigraph, actually. Um, and this epigraph, it introduces the book, and it's from Rebecca Solnitz, The Far Away Nearby. A labyrinth is an ancient device that compresses a journey into a small space, winds a path like a thread on a spool. It contains beginning, confusion, perseverance, arrival, and return. There at last, the metaphysical journey of your life and your actual movements are one and the same. You may wander. You may learn that in order to get to your destination, you must turn away from it, become lost, spin about, and then only after the way has become overwhelming and absorbing, arrive having gone the great journey without going, gone far from the ground. So what I did was I actually have five sections of the book, um, beginning, confusion, perseverance, arrival, and return. And then each of those sections starts with a different Alice in Wonderland quote. So I'm going to read the epigraph from beginning really quickly, and then I'm going to not read that chapter. (laughs) Um, so this is the second epigraph. It'll be no use putting their heads down and saying, come up again, dear. I shall only look up and say, who am I then? Tell me that first, and then, if I like being that person, I shall come up. If not, I'll stay down here until I'm somebody else. But oh dear, cried Alice with a sudden burst of tears, I do wish they would put their heads down. I'm so very tired of being all alone here. So that's Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. Um, And so I thought, actually, I would start with... The diagnosis scene, um, that's uh, pretty straightforward. And most of them have dates, not all of them do, but this one does. Uh, it's a June 17th, 2007, diagnosis. Um, and this is about two months before I started my MFA program at CalArts and uh, wrote this yearbook. So, diagnosis. I am flanked by my mother and father on the walk out of Dr. Volt's waiting room. He stops us before we get to the exam room, a manila folder under his arm. We're crowded in an awkward cluster in the hall. I have never before felt this precise hybrid of fear and boredom. Mary, he calls out to the receptionist, I can't get the MRI to show up on the screen in the exam room. I'll take them to my office instead. I hadn't expected that we would be looking at the MRI images because no one called me afterward with the results. I assumed that there were none to speak of. But when you pay for big expensive tests, it does seem like proper medical etiquette to be shown the results. Dr. Volt takes a few minutes to print out his report and make sure that the computer in his office is running. Then he calls us in from the hallway. He is behind his desk. The computer monitor is turned toward us. There are three chairs for us to sit in. I sit in front of the MRI image on the monitor to the side of the other two chairs. My mom sits next to me, my dad next to her. I don't understand the image in front of me. It's a black and white splice of a brain. I assume mine, with an inky black spot in the shape of a lopsided heart. I tell myself that this is a spot on the film, which is way too large to actually be. It's something not to worry about, something I don't understand that the doctor will explain away. The image is too starkly obvious for me to process. The simplicity of it, a big black spot on my brain, renders me speechless. We are all staring dumbly at the image on the screen until Doctor Volt begins to speak. So, this is your brain, and this—he points to a pencil. To, he points with a pencil to the black spot. Is a hole. The image comes into focus. It is not debatable. There is a hole. Uh, there is a large hole in the picture of the brain. The picture of the brain is a picture of my brain. This is my brain. He is telling me that this is my brain. We are silent. Everyone is waiting for me to speak. A hole. Yes. There's a hole in my brain. Dr. Volt pauses for a moment. Yes. Behind Dr. Volt's desk is a giant window, so clean that you feel as if you're perched in the sky. There's a direct view of the hospital landing pad on the roof of the building below us. During our conversation, a small helicopter has arrived, and tiny doctors and tiny nurses are attending to the figure swaddled in blankets on top of the tiny gurney. I watch them hovering over the mound of blankets, watch them slowly wheel it away. I feel vaguely sad for whoever is down there on that gurney. I have to watch the gurney, the helicopter, the ant doctors, because I have to keep my eyes off the image of my brain. Everyone in this room is so quiet. I want to grab my mother's hand, but I grip the chair's arm instead. It's as if as how I decide to take this news. Let's try that sentence again. It's as if how I decide to take this news decides if I'm an adult or still a child. If I grab my mother's hand, I might feel scared. If I feel scared, I might cry. If I cry, I lose. I take a deep breath. As I exhale, a question piles out. My first question is, why am I not dead or retarded? No, that would be the frontal lobe. Dr. Volt seems relieved to have some medical business to attend to. If it had happened here, he points to the image with his pencil again, tapping to the front of the brain, then yes, you would have been dead or retarded. If you'd had a stroke or something, say, but since it happened here, in the parietal lobe, on the side of the brain, you just lost some function. But since you've always been this way, we have to assume that it was developmental or trauma at birth. How big is it? I ask. I look back at the screen. I see a black shape, a deflating balloon, a steak, a kidney. I don't know how to translate this shape into matter lost. Well, these are your eyeballs. See that? Volt taps his pencil on the image of the eyeballs in the skull. I nod. Okay, so this is one eyeball. Tap, tap with his pencil. I nod. So how many of these can we fit in there? Volt begins to count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, fifteen, twenty. So, about twenty eyeballs. Twenty, my dad yells. He's been uncharacteristically quiet until now. Twenty eyeballs, I yell. It feels good to yell. It brings the air back into the room. That's a lot of eyeballs. Dr. Volt looks back at the image on the screen. So it's about the size of a lemon. Or say, a small fist, like the fist of a 10-year-old. When I look at my MRI, I see myself, and I see a stranger. I believe that this picture is of my insides, and yet I will never fully believe it. Of course, I can't take my brain out and see that it matches the missing brain matter in the photo. I can only correlate the information that the MRI represents, a parietal atrophy in the right, a partial atrophy in the right parietal lobe, with my daily life and say with a sense of both relief and physical horror that it makes sense I walk into the elevator thinking only over and over I have a fucking hole in my brain I have a fucking hole in my brain a fucking hole in my brain explaining which part of the brain does what and why and which pieces are missing an inventory of atrophy only leads to more questions like all proper creation myths mine began with a void Which happened first? Did I have a hard time learning to tie my shoes in kindergarten? Or did I have a hole in my brain? What does Gerstmann's have to do with this? Does Gerstmann's even exist? And that's a a neurological cluster of symptoms that I I have a lot of those symptoms, but I have an unusual reason for having those symptoms. Uh, So what does Gerstmann's have to do with this? Does Gerstmann's even exist? Having a hole in my brain doesn't mean I have a hole in my mind, or does it? I say nothing, just stare at the floor and my arm gripping the railing in the elevator. I'm the same person who took this elevator up. I am not sick or dying or even physically different than I was yesterday. It is an incredibly blessed and confusing situation to be confronted with shocking medical information that calls up neither grief nor joy. I'm not stricken with cancer. I'm not having twins. In the elevator, we decide to do what we usually do when faced with a family crisis go out for Chinese food. We have fried salt and pepper squid, steamed broccoli, and pan-fried noodles. I order a Coke, my only outward sign of distress. My parents say that they feel horrible that they haven't taken me to a neurologist earlier as a child. As inevitable as this line of thinking is for them, it's equally ridiculous to me. I had only agreed to see Dr. Volt because my mom had asked me to, and saying yes was much easier than saying no. I grew up during the height of the learning disability fad, the early 1990s, when ADD was on the cover of Time magazine, and lunch hour at the middle school brought a buyer's market for prescription Ritalin, often crushed and sniffed with a juice straw cut down to size in the girls' bathroom. Everyone was learning disabled. Yeah. It's a wonder that administrators didn't just throw up their hands and shut down the public schools to let the kids roam the country, with their freshly minted driver's permits, hopped up on prescription speed, and dangerously deficient of any knowledge of basic algebra. Having seen the MRI, my parents and I now have that mildly embarrassed feeling of having misplaced our keys and looked everywhere for them, only to have found them in our pocket. Now that we know, we can't imagine not knowing. We can't go back to before we knew that there was anything to know. And we are incredulous, simply incredulous, that no one thought to look for the hole before. We want to write notes to school psychologists, wring the necks of absent-minded elementary school teachers, mop the floor with the well-intended, There is no more simple and blunt an explanation than a hole in the brain, but no one thought to look. So that's the diagnosis section. Uh, And now I'm going to read actually um, a short, slightly more abstract section. Um, There are a few of these in the book. Um, And this, because they're more abstract, they don't have a date. It's just these dots. Okay. What do you do when the crisp lines you've charted throughout your life to map your sense of self? These skills go in the box marked strength. These, in the one marked weakness, begin to weep. The mess you're left with, this new alien cartography, could never lead you anywhere. You're lost. Where the hell am I? This is where I live. I can't hold a visual in my head of a map where we are or where we're going. I don't know left from right and I'm not sure how far or fast the cars will be coming toward us as we prepare to cross the street. Come on, let me show you around. The first stop on our tour is the first national bank of memory, where I work as a teller. I wear a teller's uniform, a navy blue blazer with a name tag. I wear a silk scarf around my neck, a string of fake pearls, a stiff skirt to match the blazer, stockings, and block heels. I know this place. I rob it. Daily. I rob the same bank over and over. I wear a black turtleneck and a matching beret, and I carry a giant fuck off gun like Patty Hearst. (laughs) I stick the butt of the gun in my terrified bank teller face and scream, Everyone down on the floor! But there's just me. So I get down on the floor. By writing down my memories, I commit identity fraud on myself. This is how I will build my new identity by pillaging my memory. When I was in first grade, my teacher, Mrs. Bowser, took me to the teacher's lounge with a page I had written. She held my paper up in front of our reflections in the full-length mirror. I had written everything backward again. Mrs. Bowser pointed this out gently, as if I had performed a magic trick. All of my writing is mirror writing, reflecting my backward world forward through language. The word perception is rooted in the Latin for to possess, to grab hold of and own something by the act of seeing. It's as if your eyes were lasers, cutting territorial marks into absolutely everything that you approach. I own you, curtains. I own you, oak tree, squirrel, stop sign. This explains why I keep dropping my keys, why I spill water glasses at restaurants. I grab onto the physical world, only to ultimately fumble the play. I got it, I got it, I got it. Uh Uh-oh. I don't got it. Um, So I thought, because I know there are a lot of CalArts people here tonight, that I would read the final section that I'm going to read today is about teaching at CalArts um, in September 2008, Valencia, California. As part of the program, I'm a teaching assistant for an introduction to writing course. Half of the MFA students are placed in charge of their own classrooms in support of a series of lectures given by a professor. The other half shadow different professors in their classrooms. Learning to teach is the main reason I wanted to get my MFA. So I'm ecstatic and terrified to be one of the MFA students with my own classroom. All of my life following the leader had been part of my biological imperative. In addition to navigating physical geography by playing a covert game of follow the leader, I have always watched and taken cues from my teachers and professors. The women who were my college college professors were my guides on how a woman can be smart and funny and curious about the world and be completely unapologetically herself. Now, for the first time in my life, I'm expected to lead. My introduction to writing students are surly from the start, though I don't blame them for their lack of enthusiasm for five-paragraph essay structure. Every Tuesday, the professor for this undergraduate course lectures on a different period of avant-garde art history, beginning with the futurists and ending with the conceptual artists of the late 20th century. Every Wednesday, I meet with a cluster of students for 90 minutes to go over the lecture and to assign writing assignments concerning each period. In addition to leading conversation and exercises in relation to the lecture sessions, I go over how to structure an essay, cite sources, and write a bibliography. I make it up as I go along, artlessly lobbing different pedagogical tactics, joking, cajoling, threatening. I feel less like a teacher and more like a basketball coach in an uplifting sports movie, taking my ragtag team of colorful underdogs all the way to the pennant. Some days, inevitably, are better than others. Some days I even get the sense that I know what I'm doing. Those days feel like a homecoming. As overwhelmed as I am by the brain's potential to unravel, I am more moved by its elasticity. So that's all that I'm reading today. Thank you. Uh, I hear we're doing a Q&A. <laughs> Who's excited? Yes? Um, so of all these health memoirs, mm-hmm. are any of them um, do any of them Yeah. um, The Memory Palace by, uh, I think I'm going to mess up her name, but I'm sure uh, somebody on staff will correct me. Uh, Marie Bartok, I think. I think I messed up her first name. Um, And that's a book by a woman who um, was in a car accident and her memory was completely erased and she had to learn to rebuild it. Um, So that was a book that I was inspired by. Any other questions? I was curious, um, is it hard for you to um, decide to write personally about yourself? Yeah, I, I think for a long time, like um, people who are in workshop with me at CalArts will remember, like I didn't talk about what I was writing, I just brought in pieces. Um, and I didn't know for sure how far I was going to take it as I was writing it, and I was writing it day to day. Um, So it was sort of like I could keep putting off the decision and putting off the decision until I had an agent, and then it was like, oh, I guess I have put off that decision as long as I can, and so here we are. (laughs) So yeah, uh, I sort of tricked myself into thinking that I wasn't doing it until I was. Alex, What is the uh, time period that this book cancelled? So it begins in I think 1989 uh, and it goes all the way to I want to say 2013. So uh, when I had a hard time learning how to tie my shoes in kindergarten uh, all the way up to moving to Santa Barbara and my current position at at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, yes? Did, how did um, your diagnosis affect your writing? Did you find that you wrote differently or you were concerned about other subjects? Or? Um, well, I definitely have an interest in neurology that I didn't have before. <laughs> so self-interest in neurology. Um, I've been told that my writing is more imagistic than other writers because of the right parietal thing. Um, but I don't think that it changed my writing. I think that I just sort of always had that voice. And I was also told by uh, one of my mentors at Cal Arts. he said, you're doing certain things differently, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. So I still don't know what they are. <laughs> but they're in there. You had a question? Um, there was this really famous TED Talk, and I forgot the woman's name, but she's a, a scholar, and she had a brainstem you know? I think, are you talking about stroke of genius? Stroke of insight. Right. We were just talking about it upstairs. And she, uh, when she gave her TED Talk, she was very open about the fact that her IQ descended two standard deviations, which is about 60 points. Mm-hmm. Does this, that this what happened to you, though, doesn't affect your uh, IQ ratio, right? It does. And uh, did you talk about that you Yeah. Um, I have a fourth grade understanding of math. So that's how it affects my iQ ratio. <laughs> uh, I use a tip calculating app for any tip calculating I have to do. Um, so you know, there are all different kinds of intelligence, um, and some I lost, and some I don't know if I gained it, but seems to be hanging out in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. So yep. Yes. Harold. I, I was uh, struck by the line where you said uh, about the, the hole in your brain versus the hole in your mind. Yes. So where where do, do you have more thoughts on that now? Have you been able to think about the, the, the differentiation between the two? Affairs? That continues to fascinate me um, because you know I was born with this, so I don't know if I would have been a different person if I hadn't had it. I don't know if my soul would have been different or you know, um, if the way that I think about things would be different. I would have had the same parents. My dad's a philosophy professor. My mom's a librarian. So I think that's part of when I think about brain and mind, I I think about them um, because I sort of grew up with those questions. It's a strange family. Um, So yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what's exciting to me about not just this book, but learning more about the brain, is that it just it doesn't ever stop. So, yep. Kate, was the structure that you're using to write the book apart from the beginning, or did it sort of emerge while you were in the process? It totally changed. <laughs> uh, it was non-linear and not very readable (laughs) Uh, in part for that reason though I'm sure for many other reasons Um, when I found that Rebecca Solnit quote and it was pretty late in the process Um, I already had an agent at that point and I was just trying to figure out how to structure it Um, when I found that Rebecca Solnit quote I, I was like okay I think I can use this, these five sections and then when I was working with my editor she said like you know, maybe humor me and try linear. <laughs> and it turns out it's what people prefer. Um, I, and I can understand why. Um, so this structure changed a lot. I think there was... There, Pablo? I'm if after finding out the uh, diagnosis, uh, some of the challenges that you may face, if you sort of let them go and just sort of accept these things, or if they're pushing and try to like, overcome them in some, some other way, not knowing where it's coming from. A combination. Um, I let go of wondering why I am the way I am. (laughs) Um, And I do some brain strengthening exercises. And, you know, I don't think that I'm going to do them and find them helpful to the point where I'm going to be able to drive or, like, my perception is going to completely shift. But I do find that they strengthen my brain in the day-to-day. So both... Anybody else? Yep. So, if I can understand, so you are living with this, not disease. Nope. uh, Condition. Yep. uh, Chronic. Well, lifelong, so I guess that's chronic. And it's a companion that you're living with, or does it progress, or does it? It doesn't progress. So, so it's a static given. Yes. It's static. It's not going to get bigger. It's not going to get smaller. And you were born with it. Yes, I was born with. As far as we know, I mean, it's hard to tell for sure. So your perceptions have not changed. No, this is the only perception I know. So, thanks. It's now. Sure. Yeah, Alex. I'm still wondering. I was. It, I mean, is it a part of the condition why your bank robber Cole pointed the, the butt of the. Butt? Oh. So, to me, that piece is about the difficulty I had writing the book and making the choices to write the book um, and feeling like I would have to be extremely vulnerable to do this and, in a way, I would have to rob my own sense of memory um, and I would have to, um, like, I have a picture of the MRI in, in the book and the picture of the MRI has been, like, pretty big in the media Um, And to me, like, that's part of the whole decision that I made when I decided I was basically going to rob myself of a certain identity, certain private identity. Like, I could have never told anybody about this and just gone ahead and lived my whole life. But I made the intentional decision not to do that. But I still struggle with it. So that's what that section is about. Hello, podium. MG. What are you working on? I'm working on a pitch for a book about alter egos. We'll see where that goes. Yep. Um, um, What percentage of people have this condition? It's really difficult for me to tell. I don't really know. Um, I think it's pretty rare. I mean, it's different than stroke damage, because stroke damage you're not born with. Um, So... I don't think there are that many people who are born with also th- the fact that it's so large is part of what's unusual. So it's like you're kind of the only one? In- I don't know that I'm the only one. I've been contacted by like a couple people since the book has come out who have, have different versions of it. But you know, it's like stroke injury in that everybody is a little bit different. And what causes it? What, what causes... Is it a known um, agent? Nope, not a known agent. I can't say for sure what caused it or when. Not probably not genetic, um, but I can't really say for sure. Anybody else? What's your writing then? Um, I don't I don't have a routine. Uh, right now I'm doing a lot of handwriting for research for the next book like on the bus in the morning on the way to work um, and then I'll punch that into the computer I use Scrivener a lot and, and I save quotes um, so I'm not you know and maybe because of the brain thing like I'm really not into routine or structure, I wish that I was um, so I just sort of take it as it comes anybody else? that dress is Oh, thank you. On sale at Anthropology. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, That seems like a good stopping point, maybe. (laughs) Thank you for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.